I just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You are the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. I'm Randy Robinson. Great to have you. And I'll tell you one thing I've noticed uh, in ministry and interviewing lots of people over the last several years. It's amazing how many people are effective in ministry, whether it's writing, speaking, pastoring sometimes, counseling even, who had really messed up childhoods. And you go, that, that's interesting because you also see people who are in prison or who are depressed, uh, who had messed up childhoods. You go, what's, what's the difference? Um, because a lot of people have really messed up childhoods in varying degrees, but it's stuff that they carry into adulthood. Well, what is the difference? How do you, how do you turn that into something, uh, that doesn't eat at you or hinder you and, and actually make it a positive thing? We're going to talk about that. My guest today has a book, uh, out right now, you get it where you get books called good baggage, how your difficult childhood prepared you for healthy relationships. Well, that's a bit of a different take, is it not? Because usually it's the childhood that screws up the adult relationships. But Ike Miller, my guest today, says that doesn't have to be that way. And he's going to walk you through. He's the pastor of uh, Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, his wife, Sharon Hody Miller, has been a guest on Life Today. So it's good to have Ike on. Uh, Well, I won't make a sexist comment. I almost did. <laughs> I good to have you, <laughs> Randy. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. I was I was gonna say something stupid like, you know, usually it's the husband that leads the wife, but in this case, it's the wife leading the husband. <laughs> totally honored. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get let's get to the subject at hand. Um, so I mean, you legit think that you can have a really jacked up childhood and still be effective and have good relationships as an adult? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's certainly a lot of work that goes into it. It's not a given, but there's, uh, there are tools that we can use, uh, mindset shifts that can take place, redemptive work that can happen with God. And so I think that there is ways that it can prepare us and then we have to do the work to realize it, to make it a reality. Okay. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> you're speaking from experience. Yeah. So just to share a little bit of my story, mm-hmm. my story is uh grew up in a context where my father had an alcohol use disorder and that caused lots of challenges in our home, lots of chaos in our home, uh, ultimately my parents' divorce. And uh, and so growing up in an environment that was chaotic at times could be abusive and uh, both ver- verbally and physically. And so kind of growing in that up in that context, it obviously shaped me in certain ways, as it would anyone. And, you know, the funny thing about it is I think by the time I was in my early 20s, I kind of thought like somehow I escaped that without any impact, without any baggage, without any, you know, residual effects. Mm. And it really wasn't until I entered my own marriage and got into sort of that level of a relationship with someone that I started to see the impact of that and started having to do some of this work. Okay, you used a term I've never heard before, so I got to ask you about it. An alcohol okay. use disorder. Is that yeah. what we would just call alcoholism typically or is that what what does that mean? 
Yeah. So, you know, typically it's been uh, described someone as an alcoholic. And I think there's been a shift in that language because alcoholic makes it sound like this is this is the whole of the person. This is what captures who they are versus a person with an alcohol use disorder says this is one part of them. It is a okay. disorder. Um, and so it's kind of that person first kind of language. So okay. but yeah, okay. it's what we would call an alcoholic or someone with alcoholism. Okay. I want to make sure I didn't make an assumption there that I shouldn't make. Um, so when you talk about um, discovering in your adulthood that that had more of an impact on you than you thought, uh, mm -hmm. did it manifest itself physically? In other words, did you start developing uh, an alcohol use disorder or did it re manifest itself in, in more psychological ways? It was more psychological. You know, I, I first began to realize some of that impact when uh, Sharon and I had been married just a couple of months. And Sharon said to me, basically one day, she she loves Disney World. And she was like, if you're going to be married to me, you need to understand my love for Disney. And so <laughs> we went on a trip to Disney. And uh, while we were there, you know, we were three or four days into a trip. And I just realized, you know, here I am in what's supposed to be the happiest place on earth. And I'm not very happy. In fact, I'm quite melancholy melancholy. And that kind of started to raise some questions for me and potentially uh, seeking out some help for depression. And that was kind of the moment where I realized, okay, I think maybe there's some stuff below the surface that I need to work through. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of my journey and realizing that. Um, but then during the pandemic in particular, that kind of forced a lot of things to the surface. And in particular, you know, in that season, anybody that was in a position of leadership, making decisions for other people, right? right you know, you were making decisions that it didn't matter what decision you made. Somebody was going to be upset. With you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, for me, I just found myself reaching a place of exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, because I could not handle the impact of so many people being upset with me or disagreeing with me. And I took some time off. But a part of that was I, I did realize I was numbing my pain with some anxiety medication that I was on. I was starting to take more of it than I should have. Mm -hmm. And at that point, realizing I, I wasn't into an addiction, but I was starting to develop some of those addictive tendencies. And so that was kind of a wake up call for me in a lot of ways. Well, good. Uh, good that you woke up before it did get bad. Um, mm -hmm. But what do you when you look back at that? Um, what was it that was manifested? What did you did you just suppress a lot of the pain from the childhood? Is that yeah. kind of kind of typical, actually? Yeah. So one of the things that became clear that was a direct correlation to my childhood is growing up in the environment that I grew up in. Um, typically, the spouse or children of an alcoholic develops codependency. And when we think of codependency, we think of people pleasing or approval seeking or just kind of keeping the peace. Right. But really what codependency is, is it's what... Uh, T. and Dayton, one author described as a trauma-related loss of self, meaning at some point in our life, we went through something where we had to be someone other than ourselves in order to survive, whether mentally, emotionally, or physically. And so because of that, we had to be who someone else wanted us to be in order to survive. And so we don't really have a clear sense of who we are. And so every situation we go into after that, we're asking, okay, who do the people in this room want me to be? 
How do I be what their expectations of me are, what their desires for me are? And so take that and place that in the pandemic where you're trying to make everyone happy in an impossible situation. Essentially, what I had done is I had taken the codependency of my childhood and imported it into my church. And what really was the light bulb moment is I was reading about codependency and they said, a major part of codependency is you try to use your words and actions to manage the emotions and reactions of others. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what it is. And so I began to explore what are the other ways that my childhood had impacted my ministry and my leadership in particular. You know, what's interesting when you talk about I think to a degree, every child goes through that because yeah. we're not our parents, but our parents, uh, I mean, they're not out to try to, but they're out to try to shape us in a positive way. And, and sure. parents aren't perfect as you may, That's right. may know, or, or your kids will tell you in a few years. <laughs> when they kids hit their will teenagers. tell us soon. Yeah. 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 You'll find, they'll tell you soon enough. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like, you know, I mean, I didn't, my dad and my parents were not, we didn't have alcohol in our house because we were yeah. good Baptists. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, anyway, so th- there was none of that. There was no abuse. There, were, but there was. Uh, oh my gosh, I modified my behavior to please him. I still. There are times when I still. So what? Here's yeah. here's the question. I think what, when do you realize? Okay, because there. Yeah, we should try to, to a level, please other yeah. people. I, I go out of my way. I would change my normal routine to do something to make my wife happy. Yeah. Um, where is the line between not living just for myself, but, you know, living yep. to serve others as mm-hmm. opposed to losing myself to try to please somebody? Where is, how do you so, find that uh, line? Yeah, the line that I've landed on that I think has been most helpful has been, at what point is my attempt to please you require me to disrespect myself? At what point do I have to be silent about your comments about me or your demands of me? Mm -hmm. Uh, At what point has this moved from your requests to your manipulation and your control? And so that that self-respect piece, you know, the idea that I have certain emotional and physical boundaries that should be respected. And when I have to set those aside in order to please you, we've crossed into some dangerous, dangerous territory. That's, that's good. That's, you've really thought about this. That is very, <laughs> that is very helpful and very clear. Um, so when you get into, as a pastor, especially, I'm sure you've, you've, you've also worked through sort of the theological implications uh-huh. of all this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the temptation for me would be to form an idea and go find scripture to back it up mm-hmm. completely backwards, right? Mm-hmm. When you look at scripture first, yeah, where what what sort of guidances do you get to get you to the, the place yeah. that you're at? Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, so I think along those lines of loving those around us and yet having self-respect, I think one of the things that we struggle with in the church is knowing the difference between self-sacrificial love and codependency, for example, right? And really the line there is the line of um, self-sacrificial love is something that I do really for the glory of God. But a lot of times in our self-sacrificial love for others, really it is for our own glory, 
for our own approval. And so one, being able to assess, okay, am I doing this for the glory of God? But two, is this really about me? And the reason that I name that is because we see that demonstrated in Jesus. Jesus obviously was self-sacrificial in his love, but he also was not just bending over backwards and answering every request that was made of him. I mean, at the end of Mark chapter one, we see, you know, Jesus has healed people all night. And the next morning, the disciples come looking for him because he has gone off to himself to pray. And they're like, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus's response is on to the next town. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, the message. one of my favorite passages where he's like on to the next town, he gets there. They're like, do some miracles, Jesus. He's like, oh, okay. And he gets in the yeah. boat leaves yeah like talk about not pleasing people yeah well and he realizes in this moment they are not interested really in god they are interested in what jesus can give them and so it's really about them yeah and and which is which is i think an interesting parallel because yeah you're right a lot of times we 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 will self-sacrifice uh not out of a sense of of godliness but out mm-hmm. of a sense of okay, what will this do for me? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Right, right. Yeah, what will they do with me, do for me because I've done this for them? Yeah, that- yeah, yeah. And and when you get right down to it in scripture, I mean, it it says you know what we ought to I ought to be God rather than men. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and even Jesus says, look, you got you got to in comparison almost hate. Well, he does say hate your family, which is yeah. such strong language that strong. I mm-hmm. still struggle with that one. Right, he's not yeah. calling us to hate our family he's just saying that the god's calling has to be that much higher which means if we're trying to please especially trying to please people who are contrary to what god's calling us to do Mm -hmm. we got to make that decision uh and and you're right it's not self-sacrifice love at that point it's it's actually obedience to god to not go along okay yeah very interesting okay we're gonna get to the good part because the title of the book is good baggage so we're going to talk about how do how do we turn how do we pivot what's the pivot point to make this good uh it's ike miller's book available wherever you get books you can also go to ikemiller.com thanks for making that one easy uh it's a good url i can remember that uh, there you go so here's the the you know the question of the day yeah i've had the bad stuff in the childhood it's showing up in adulthood uh you're saying it can be actually used for good mm-hmm. how in the world do you do that Yeah, great question. So there's a couple of pieces to it. There is the mental shift of being able to recognize that for many of us who experienced a dysfunctional family or difficult relationships in our childhood, the one thing that we want more than anything else to see our relationships go differently than what we saw in our childhood. And so the first part of this is letting that passion, that desire to see our relationships go differently, be a motivator to pursue healthy relationships, uh, to educate ourselves on good communication, to educate ourselves on conflict resolution. Uh, And so that serves as a motivator. The second piece of this, though, and this is what a lot of the book is, is recognizing that a lot of our baggage, really what we're talking about, are coping mechanisms we developed in a dysfunctional relationship that we then carry into other relationships that don't require those coping mechanisms. And so in those environments, they actually begin to work against us. That's why we think of it baggage is bad is because the baggage we carry from the other relationship is now infecting this new relationship. 
And so what I'm getting at in the book is to say, okay, if these coping mechanisms originally served us in some way, is there some way that we can disarm the negative impact that they have on us and yet still leverage the good stuff in them? So, for example, uh, you know, talking about going into a room with my father when I was a kid, one of the things that I got really good at was sort of assessing the emotional climate of the room. You know, is it safe to be here? Where is he at emotionally? Is he angry? Is he sad? Is he happy? Is it safe to be here? Is everything okay? And that became sort of a coping mechanism's ability to determine, do I need to find a way out or is it okay? Sure. That has given me and a lot of people that grew up in a similar context, the ability to read emotion and read rooms very well, to read people, to read body language. Yeah. And the way that that works against us is we go into a room and if somebody's upset, we immediately take responsibility for it. Mm. I must be the reason they're upset, mm. right? But if we can disarm that, if we can create the differentiation between us and them enough to say, okay, I may not be responsible for it, but let's talk about it. You know, so if I go into a room with my team uh, at our church and I can tell somebody is off a little bit, something's going on, rather than jumping straight into the business of the day, I can say, hey, it looks like something's on your mind. Can we talk about it? And that just builds trust in our relationship as a team. Or when I come home at the end of the day and I walk in the house and I can tell Sharon's off, body language is off, I can say, hey, what's going on? Let's talk about it. And that actually really serves to bring health to the relationship. That's interesting. Because uh, you know, my dad's dad was an alcoholic. Mm. Um, and violence and abandonment, all, all the negative stuff. And he can read a room like nobody I've ever seen, <laughs> right? I mean, literally yeah. the strength of a lot of his preaching back in the 60s, 70s, 80s was being able to stand up in front of a crowd. And once he'd start talking, he could he could kind of read the vibe of the crowd, which means he could then speak into it. And you go, how do you – because I am I was that, I, I need courses on that. I mean, I've learned <laughs> over the years, but in, sure. in, innately I'm like clueless. You know, yeah. and yeah. I've had to kind of come the other way and learn. So that's very interesting to, to see how you can take that negative and turn it into a positive. So you, you've been, obviously, you've probably done some sermons on this, uh, you know, Bright City Church. Um, when, when you see people here, okay, I can actually take something good out of that without having the negatives that were there. Um, mm -hmm and use it in a positive, constructive way, not just for, as you point out, not just for normal relationships, but healthy relationships. Right. What's, what's, what kind of fruit have you seen from that in people's lives? Yeah. Um, on one level, I think just being open to share my journey, I think is, has helped others to say, Oh yeah. Oh, not only do I not have to just like stuff this stuff down, mm -hmm. but actually bringing this up and talking about it uh, is a good and safe and healthy thing to do for my own relationship. So one, it's just in our church at the very least, it has created a safe space for people to be able to kind of talk about these things that really we all to some degree carry into a room, but we just don't know if it's safe to do. So some of it has been that the other fruit that I've seen in my own relationship is it's taught me how to talk to my kids in a way that help them be able to do some of this interior work, because a lot of this really is me being able to observe 
what I'm feeling, what I'm about to do in reaction to someone and stopping it before it happens. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that depends on my ability to pick up on what am I feeling emotionally? Am I angry? Am I frustrated? Am I agitated? Am I disappointed? And in, and be able to react how I want to react versus how my body and my emotions want to react. And so when I do that work, then I can go to my kids and I can say, hey, I can tell you're, you're frustrated mm. about this. Tell me more about it. And so I've seen just the health of my own relationship with my own kids has changed too. Have you seen any people in your circles, staff, church, things like that, that you have shared this with them and they go, mm -hmm. that was me. I need, I need yeah. to turn it into good baggage too. Have you seen some results on that end? Yeah. You know, that was honestly what drove me to write the book was mm. me having moments where I would share my story mm. and realizing I'm not the only one, right. with this. Mm. you know, and in fact, I think there's a space for a conversation to be had around this. And so certainly I've gotten a lot of that from my staff, from people in our church on social media, I've shared some of that and just realizing, yeah, there's a whole conversation that needs to happen here. Good. I'm, I'm glad you're having it. Um, and a lot of people need to have it. Uh, and, and it's it's nice to know that, you know, a lot of people with these kinds of pains, these situations, mm -hmm. it's embarrassing. They, you know, they, they don't want to slander others in some cases, you know. Sure. Uh, and so it's not something you want to talk about. But just giving them room to say, you know what, you, you can have the conversation. It will actually help you. It will actually help others. And there's a way to do it where you don't cause a bunch of just unnecessary destruction in the process. Uh, right. I think it's really encouraging and, and people need to understand that. Um, yeah. so yeah, good, good on you for, for your good baggage. Um, <laughs> what, what's sort of your, what, what, if people walk away from this interview yeah. with sort of one key thing, mm -hmm. is there any one particular thing you would single out? I think the big thing is, you know, there's kind of been two ways of thinking about this stuff. You know, we we look back at our difficult childhoods and we draw the conclusion of why, how dare God let this happen to me? Hmm. And that God must not care about me because he let this happen. And then another mentality has been, well, God wanted this to happen so that he could then use it for something else. And granted, there's a redemptive element to that. It makes God the author of some evil things. And so what I want to do, and I've done in this book or tried to do at least, is say there are evils that happen to us not because God wanted them to happen, but because as sinners, we hurt one another and, and sins are committed against us. And sometimes in our baggage, we end up hurting others out of our brokenness, not just our rebellion against God. And so what I want to do is I want to say, God may not have been the author of this, but God can be the redeemer of it. He can take that, the things that we thought were lost and broken and worthless, and infuse it with new purpose and life and hope. And so that's my encouragement is for people to be able to name, hey, this was evil, but it doesn't mean it's beyond redemption. Dude, that is so good. That is so good. I thank you. I appreciate you opening up. Uh, sharing uh, and taking a little bit of time with us today. You can check him out at ikemiller.com uh, and tell your wife hello from people at Life Today. Oh, and uh, we appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great.
Appreciate all you guys out there hanging out, listening. You might know somebody uh, that needs to hear this as well, uh, and they will be encouraged. So please do hit that share button. If you haven't liked, follow, subscribe, do that. Uh, check out Good Baggage. Also, I want to show you real quick. This is IkeMiller.com. It's got the book on it, so you know you're in the right place. Uh, but you can also follow at Bright City. What, what was the website? BrightCityChurch.com. Uh, if you want to hear any of his sermons, uh, good resources for you. It's it's all about getting you on the way to more joy in your life, more peace in your life, and healthier relationships. So again, we appreciate you being here. We'll see you again next time on Life Today Live.